it really did. It really, really did. And I kept thinking somebody else would do it. I mean, literally, I thought of all the people who were diagnosed with cancer, you know, one of them has got to come out and write a book and say, these are the things you should and shouldn't say. Um, or these are the things that are really, really helpful. And, you know, we, my husband and I were very, very lucky in that we have a knack for being parts of community. You know, we moved all, all across the country and every single place, we always kind of built this community around us. And so we had a very large, we had several different communities that were surrounding us when he was sick and after he died. And I think it's the brain power of those communities that led me to see this is, this stuff is so helpful. I mean, it just, it took so much pressure off. And I often say, I'm not here because I'm super strong or super courageous because I got through my husband's death. I'm here because of all the simple little, because of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of simple little things that people did for us during that time. Successful brands are rooted in purpose and driven by the potential to make a positive impact on their customers. Welcome to The Pursuit of Purpose with Amy Austin. Each week, Amy brings you practical advice to embrace the power of purpose in all aspects of your business and transform it into the central storyline for your branding and marketing strategies. Welcome to this week's Pursuit of Purpose. My guest this week is Kim Hamer, and she is the author of 100 Acts of Love, a girlfriend's guide to loving your friend through cancer or loss, as well as the host of a podcast by the same name, 100 Acts of Love. Welcome to the show, Kim. And can we just start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what 100 Acts of Love is all about? Well, Amy, thank you so much for being here. It's, it's really an, an honor to be able to be on this podcast. I joke that I wrote 100 Acts of Love for myself <laughs> because uh, my husband had cancer twice. And what I realized through that journey was that most people, many people didn't know what to do or what to say. But then there were friends who knew exactly how to show up and they showed up in these really small, simple and significant ways. And it also occurred, unfortunately, my husband um, actually died from his second entanglement, I like to call it, from cancer. While he was sick and after he died, so many people showed up in these tiny little ways. And, and I love to give like little examples. Like we got, uh, someone sent us a gas card in the mail. It was anonymous. I think the card amount was like $15. And it was just, it was the thought of sending that gas card. You know, it was the thought that someone said, you know, she probably needs gas. During the first time that he had cancer, people were bringing us meals as is, you know, the go-to help. And it was really great, but we had to be home every single time that a meal came and people would bring the meal to the door and then ask how Art was, want to kind of get the information on how he was doing. And a lot of the times that was really exhausting. You know, maybe we had spent a whole day up at the cancer treatment center. Maybe he had been test for that day. And it was really hard to find the energy to, to respond to people. And so my friend, the second time my husband um, was entangled with cancer, she suggested that we put a cooler by the front door. And so people could leave the meal in the cooler. And if I knew they were coming and we were home, the option of opening the door and talking to them, you know, if we had the energy and we wanted to kind of engage, we had that option. So it was things like that. We had three kids at the time. When my husband was first diagnosed, my children were four, six, and nine. And, you know, making them lunches every day was something that I had always done. But when he had cancer, it became really exhausting. And so my friend said, well, let us make lunches. And I thought, oh my gosh, like that's a genius idea. And so our friends, friends would get together and they would pack the kids' lunches, all except sandwiches. And I would have lunches delivered and ready and set to go for the week on Sunday. So what I realized is that most people, when they think about helping a friend with cancer, they think about big grand things, right? They think about, we're gonna deliver meals for a year every Tuesday, or they think about, you know, we're gonna take your kids for ice cream every Friday. They think really big things. And what I realized during my experience is that it's really the small, small little things that were so helpful. So I sat down and wrote this book 
uh, with the idea of giving friends of those with cancer the tips and ideas of simple little ways that they could they could be supportive. That's amazing because you know as anyone who's listened to my my podcast knows, and as you and I have talked about, both of my parents passed from cancer, and with my mom she lived with us for a period of time during the stretches of her of her treatments and and i know there were people who would have liked to have been able to do something to help and some did but i think there were a fair number of people and i've been in the situation when i hear of friends who have are facing a cancer diagnosis whether it's their own or someone that they love of what is something that's meaningful that i can do to help and I, I love the idea that your book just gives us such practical tips that probably, you know, I would imagine I flipped through the, through some of your information and it's like, these are so obvious, but yet so not top of mind when you're in that situation. Exactly. Exactly. I think the thing is we, you know, a lot of people feel guilty for not knowing exactly how to help. And I really kind of want people to alleviate themselves from that guilt because we're not taught, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't what 30 years ago, you know, you said cancer with a whisper. You were like, she has cancer. We have come a long way in accepting illness and disease as part of life. And it's not a, it's, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that you're a bad human. It doesn't mean you're a sinner, you know, but we still hold on to the old ideas of, let me just drop off a casserole. And while a casserole can be helpful, and I'm actually going to talk about why a casserole isn't actually really very helpful. There are so many little simple things that people can do. And when I wrote the book, I remember being very specific about the, the way it was designed because I wanted it to be the kind of book that anyone could flip open to any page and be, you know, go in that pan a motive. Oh my gosh, my friend has cancer. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Open it up and read tip number 46, which is stock her bathroom. And it seems like, what do you mean stock her bathroom? Well, what, what people don't understand, what I want people to, under, to know is when you have cancer or when you're a caregiver for someone who has cancer, normal things that take no energy and no brain power are so easy to do. But when you add in a life crisis, Something like remembering to buy toilet paper is like, it's a big monumental thing. And so being the person who makes sure that your friend has shampoo and toothpaste and toothbrushes and toilet paper and that there's kid shampoo and conditioner, think about what's in your bathroom, making sure that you're the person who stocks that for them. I mean, you, you take such a burden off of them. And it's a burden that most people who are dealing with someone with cancer or have cancer don't even realize they have. And I think that that's the, that, that's why it's so not obvious to get these things done. You know, if you go through a list of your life every day of what you do, you could come up with thousands of different ways you can support a friend with cancer. Right. You know, I, um, I just want to tell this really quick story. We had a neighbor, Nate, and Nate, uh, this is after my husband died, and Nate kind of wandered up. He would wander up to the house every now and then, and he wandered up, and he said, when was the last time the oil was changed in your car? And I couldn't answer him. This was the, or maybe within six or seven months after my husband died. I had no idea because that had been, that had been one of Art's jobs, right? And I couldn't even tell him if the, if the oil light was on. And he said, well, look, why don't you leave the keys in the mailbox, text me when the keys are in the mailbox, I'll take the car, I'll fill it with oil. And I was like, okay, great, you know? So I did that the next day and um, I got in the car a little bit later and I started to cry because not only had he changed the oil, had the oil changed in the car, he had also had it cleaned and he filled it with gas. And I had no idea that that was actually weighing on me, that it was something that I kept thinking, I've got to get the car cleaned, I've got to get more gas, I've got to get the car cleaned, I've got to get more gas. And my tears were because, you know, he had alleviated this huge amount of pressure that I've been feeling that I just felt was so overwhelming because I was trying to manage, you know, three children and, and the loss of my life partner that it was, it just took, it took so much pressure off. And, and those are the simple things that people can do that remove that remove the pressure. Right. I know one of the things that that I read, I don't remember exactly when it was that I read this. I know it was while my mom was still alive and I if whether or not it was while she was living here with us or not, I don't remember. But it was this a piece of advice of don't ask someone how they're doing. Ask someone how they're doing today. Yes. Quantify it. 
Because yeah. when you just ask the question, how are you doing? That allows their brain to just go into, you know, 900,000 different directions. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you want to know how I'm doing? Is it, is it in my, you know, is it in work? Is it in my personal life? Is it what's going on at home? You know, I don't know how to answer that question. But if you ask me, how am I doing today? It gives me a specific time frame. In this yeah. moment, right now, how am I doing? What's going on? Am I okay? Do I need help? What can I do? And I think that is so important because also when you ask how you're doing, that's so broad. And the person feels like you don't really care. You're asking, but you really don't want to know. You don't really care. But when you ask how, how are you doing today, that's so specific. And it really focuses in on, oh, they really do want to know how I'm doing right now. And honestly, I'm having a crappy time you know, or honestly, I'm actually so surprised that I feel balanced or honestly, you know, so it opens up that conversation. That's such a great tip. So I'm curious, Kim, you wrote this book after your husband passed away, right? Mm -hmm. What was it that, that kept you motivated to write this book? Because I think at least from my and I don't necessarily want to say it's from my own experience, but I, I catch myself feeling sometimes like that was a specific encapsule of time, right? Mm. When my, when we were in that situation of helping my mom with her cancer journey and everything and everything since then is, you know, life after that. And how did you keep your, your motivation towards wanting to fulfill this need that you saw going when you were no longer faced with it yourself day to day? Wouldn't there be this desire to just say, I need to put this on a shelf because it could be too painful to continue to think about? Yeah. You know, I tried to put it on the shelf. I think, I, I really tried to put it away. And what really came clear to me is this was my purpose. And I can't explain it. I can't tell you why. Um, you know, my husband died 11 years ago. He was 44 at the time. And I thought from, from that moment, or even before then, when he was sick, I kept trying to put this idea on the shelf. I kept thinking, oh, someone else will do it. There's lots of other information out there. No one needs this. And when you are a spouse of someone who has cancer, or when you're a widow, you become the go, especially at a young age, you become the go-to widow person or the go-to cancer person when people in your community are dealing with the same struggle. And so people would come to me and say, you know, I don't know what to do for John. You know, I don't know what to do for Alex. I don't know what to do for, you know, Martha. And I would say, well, you know, why don't you think about this or ask this question or, and they would be like, oh my gosh, this is so helpful. Thank you so much. The book came to me. I, I couldn't, I couldn't handle writing a whole book. I really couldn't. I couldn't wrap my head around it. So I literally wrote it 17 minutes a day. And I would go to work and I always hesitate saying this because I was getting paid to write a book. Um, so I would go to work and I would set my timer. And the first thing I would do, I would set my timer for 17 minutes and I would write for 17 minutes. And sometimes I'd go over and sometimes I'd have to push to even get to that 17 minutes. But it was something that was so, there's, there's no way for me to even describe it. It just kept pulling at me, kept nudging me. It wouldn't leave me alone. You know, I published the book and I, I waited for Oprah Winfrey to discover me because I didn't, I, I, I couldn't, I, the idea of marketing it and, and letting the world know about it felt way too overwhelming, felt like I was just overstepping some type of imaginary boundaries I had. And it just kept nipping at me. It just kept saying, you got to do something. Look, they need you here. Look, they could use your help here. Look, they could be here. And I've always known that I've wanted to be of service to my community somehow, even from when I was little, I would have these, I would have these fantasies of like, you know, speaking to throngs of people. And I never knew what I was going to be speaking about. You know, I knew I didn't want to be a politician. I just had these like images in my head and I never felt like I had a clear enough message until, until probably the second time my husband had cancer. When I started kind of telling people, like I kept a blog, um, it was like, what was it? It was artnagel.blogspot.com. So it was an old Hotmail blog. It's still up. And I kept a blog. And in the blog, I would say, hey, 
you know, don't say this, say this, or, you know, Hey, this is, this was really helpful today. And it wasn't until then that I started to kind of, I just had to start embracing it. I just didn't have much of a choice. And it really found you. It sounds like. It really did. It really, really did. And I kept thinking somebody else would do it. I mean, literally I thought of all the people who were diagnosed with cancer, you know, one of them has got to come out and write a book and say, these are the things you should and shouldn't say. Um, or these are the things that are really, really helpful. And, you know, we, my husband and I were very, very lucky in that we have a knack for being parts of community. You know, we moved all, all across the country and every single place, we always kind of built this community around us. And so we had a very large, we had several different communities that were surrounding us when he was sick and after he died. And I think it's the brain power of those communities that led me to see this is, this stuff is so helpful. I mean, it just, it took so much pressure off. And I often say I'm not here because I'm super strong or super courageous because I got through my husband's death. I'm here because of all the simple little, because of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of simple little things that people did for us during that time that allowed myself, my husband and my children to feel loved and cared for and, and like we mattered. And that's, that's the gift of doing, that's why I call it an act of love, because that's the gift of doing an act of love is you're basically saying to someone, I love you, I care about you. It's such an important piece because so many people just don't have, they almost get paralyzed with the idea of, I want to be able to help, but I just don't know what to do, or I don't know what's appropriate, or what would be appreciated or actually helpful. Yes. So I love that you're doing this, and I, I love that you didn't allow it to be put on a shelf and, and, and just you know, ignore that, that pull to do this. Kim, I remember you telling me that during your husband's cancer journey, and I don't recall if it was during his first diagnosis or the second, but you really credited the community around him and at work and the support that he received as keeping him with you, helping him stay, yes. stay with you and alive longer. Can you tell me a little bit about what, what you meant by that? The cancer diagnosis came sort of like the way you see in a TV show, you know, except we were in, we were in my, the, the doctor had his fingers laced on the exam table on one side and my husband and I were sitting on the other side and he had just had an exam because he was having trouble, a lot of trouble breathing. And the doctor said, I cannot confirm this 100%, but I think you have cancer because here's your x-ray. And he showed us the x-ray and there were just these nodules all over his chest the doctor left the room for us to kind of digest the information. And we made, you know, three phone calls. The first phone call was to his parents. The second phone call was to my parents. And the third phone call was to his boss. And that phone call to his boss really signified something for me that I didn't realize until later. One, about the kind of relationship my husband had with his boss, that he wanted his boss to know what was happening. The second thing is his boss ended up, I fully believe, saved Art's life. Because his boss got on the phone and talked to somebody else who knew a doctor who was out of our network at the time, who was specialized in, was an incredible uh, cancer doctor and, and is known worldwide as this incredible cancer doctor. And he ended up getting us an appointment with him on Monday. So we were, he was, my husband was diagnosed on a Friday and we ended up with this world-renowned, having an appointment with this world-renowned doctor on Monday. The doctor ended up treating Art. And I know the, the, the type of treatment he used was a treatment that was not commonly used, but had shown a lot of studies, had shown great efficacy, and I fully believe saved his life the first time around. The treatment that we were going to get was the old treatment, and the cancer was way too aggressive, and my husband would never have survived that, that treatment. My, my husband's boss gave my kids, and I always cry when I think about this, two extra years with him, or three, or um, actually three extra years with him. And that meant in a lot of ways that my kids had memories of my husband because the first time my husband had cancer, my kids were four, six, and nine. Um, so my nine-year-old would have had memories of my husband, but my four-year-old wouldn't have. And so, you know, my husband died when the kids were seven, nine, and 12. And those, those were key years. You know, my seven-year-old remembers my husband. And so that's the power of a network 
Um, and that's the power that I always talk about when I talk about the HR experience is your organization, your company could have that kind of power, could have that kind of networking within its, within its community that you can make that kind of difference to an employee with cancer. So I forget about that story because I always get emotional about it, but it's a huge difference. And uh, the support that Art got when, his, when the community kept showing up at the door, like I said, or, you know, with the casseroles and with the meals and with the taking the kids out and with the gifts and then just the checking in, he was so excited. He was so engaged and ready to go back to work. And I took sort of a, you know, impromptu survey. And, you know, what I found was that people at work at his job were so enthused and grateful for the way that the, comp that the organization, the school that he worked at stepped up. I mean, I have no doubt in my mind, and, and I will have numbers to prove this someday, that it also improves employee engagement. Because when you, when you as an organization are willing to step up for an employee, all the other employees think, wow, Oh my gosh, I'm so happy for a company that actually cares about us as human beings. Um, and so it's so deeply, deeply powerful on so many different levels. And my husband was so anxious to get back to work. He was so ready to give to that organization, you know, and he, I remember him saying, you know, this is the last job I ever want to have. You know, unfortunately it was much sooner than we thought it would be, but it, he, it was the last job he ever, he ever wanted because he was so devoted to that organization because they were so devoted to the human side of him. You know, and that speaks for that organization's values and, yes. and it uplifts their brand, both from an employer brand, you know, because there's, there's facets to brands across the organization. And, you know, you have a brand reputation as being an employer. As an employer, you always strive to be employer of choice. You want to be known as the company that people want to come work for. And what you just described elevates them in a way that other brands want to be at, but probably and likely struggle to be able to do. Yeah. I mean, and they don't, you know, you never want to be in a situation where you're facing what you just described for an employee. You know, you, you never want to wish that as a brand strategist, you don't want to sit in the corner and wish that one of your employees would get cancer so that you can have this great rah-rah moment to be able to support them and increase your, your brand equity from an employer standpoint. But to know that you can do that and that you, and the goodwill that spreads amongst the employees there, to know that they're rallying to support one of their own, you can't replicate that. I mean, and you, you can't, no, and so you can't orchestrate it either. You can't force it. It has to be authentic. And exactly. that's why I understand why your husband felt the way he, that he did of, you know, I want this to be the last place that I work and I want, I'm excited to go back because he felt all the love and support that, that they were giving to him. And I'm certain that it helped him through some of the more challenging times of his diagnosis and his care and motivated him to want to be able to be out of place strength-wise, health-wise, to be able to walk back through those doors and thank those employees, those coworkers and colleagues for all that they had done for him and for you and for his kids. Exactly. And I think that that is so, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think the what I like to do to help companies is to take a look at their brand. What is your culture? Because not all things, not all tips or helps are created equal. You know, some organizations are not warm and fuzzy. And so there are things, but there are still things that that organization can do that will help bring their culture around and help kind of define their culture culture and reinforce their culture within the organization. Hey, we're not a, we're not a fuzzy organization, but here is how we took steps to support this employee. What I also saw happening in a lot of time uh, and some other places is that an employee who had cancer before would end up leading the charge to support another employee who had cancer, you know, later. And so there's that, you know, you, when you have that inside knowledge that you can tap into, that's really strong too. So understanding who you are as an organization is really important in understanding how you're going to move forward to support your employee in crisis. Yeah, and definitely. It doesn't, 
Yeah, it doesn't mean that you have to overstep all these HR boundaries, right? It doesn't mean you have to kind of go, you know, we're kind of a stern organization. We, we, we expect our employees to show up. We expect our employees to go home and show up again, but not bring all their life stuff into work. Well, that doesn't mean that you can't support. It means that maybe you just decide that you're going to give them an Uber gift card and you're going to tell them that you're going to refill that Uber gift card every month for 50 bucks, you know, or maybe it's, maybe you all decide that you're going to, um, you know, donate, you know, PTO hours to this person so that they can, so they they can have the time off and they don't have to go without pay. There are very specific things that every company can do that work specifically for them. And that's sort of, that's part of what I do when I come in because not everything fits everybody. Just like, you know, my saying to you, I'm happy to take care of your daughter. That's not going to work. I live in California. You live in Iowa. It's not going to work. Exactly. That'd be a little <laughs> challenging. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, figuring, helping companies figure out how they want to support the employee and what they want to do is, is a very important part of, of the work that I do. So the other day, I posted on LinkedIn about my service called the Marketing Director on Call, and I had a person reach out to me and say, hey, I don't know what this is. Can you tell me more about it? So I thought maybe I should tell you about it, too. We're all familiar with a physician calling on another physician to help with a patient, right? That physician there calling is on call. My on-call service is the same thing. If you are responsible for marketing but have no one to brainstorm ideas with or have marketing responsibilities as quote, other duties as assigned. Or maybe you are a founder or a business owner who is looking to bootstrap as many business functions as possible until you've grown enough to hire a bigger team. Each of these roles may put you in a position to want to talk to an expert in marketing or branding. And you know what? That's me. And that's where the marketing director on call service is valuable. You drive the agenda, we brainstorm and strategize for an hour, working out an action plan, and you leave with clarity and confidence to make it happen. I'm on call for you. Your second opinion is a phone or now a Zoom call away. Check out the link in the show notes for more information about the marketing director on call service and also how to schedule a discovery call to, to find out if it's the right service for you. I look forward to hearing from you. So the other thing that I think is really interesting about the work that you're doing is that your podcast is really focused on helping HR professionals understand how they can be of greater service to the either the management or to the employee themselves that is dealing with a cancer diagnosis or being a caregiver for someone with a cancer diagnosis or any traumatic or chronic illness really yes. would, would apply. And I think that is so important. And it, it feels to me like it's just a, the natural extension of what you, what you started with the book. Yes. It's the absolutely. way to be able to take that, that underlying purpose and, and pull that you have to be able to help people understand it and slide it into your professional work in a way that will be so valuable going forward. Can you just tell me a little bit about how did you come up with the idea to use your platform as an HR professional to help others in that, in that space? Well, I think the first thing was, like I said, my husband, you know, he was diagnosed with cancer first at the age of 40, and then he died at the age of 44. And so at that point, we didn't know many people who had many people, you know, his age who had cancer. But as the years went on, you know, we started, or at least I started losing friends and hearing about battles of cancer between 44, you know, when he would between for the six years afterwards. And of course, it's just gotten worse. I read a study that basically said 46.3% of the people who get cancer are between the ages of 25 and 54. And when I was, that's like half, that's almost half the cancer diagnosis. And it blew me away that that was, that was a statistic. And arts, uh, Art was working at a school at the time and the community there was so kind and so loving. And they just, th there was no line between, you know, what was proper and what wasn't. They were just kind of like parents were showing up at our door, teachers were showing up at our door, parents were calling and 
saying, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Students were, were, were showing up at our door and, and sending our a lot of love. And so I just kind of put that in the back of my head because honestly, I thought that was the way that all people acted when, 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 when an employee had cancer. Isn't that what everyone does? And then I, um, at the time I wasn't working and I went back into the HR field and immediately in my very first HR job back into the field, my boss's wife died from cancer. And it was a small office and I saw people running around like chickens with their heads cut off. We've got to do this. We've got, we've got to bring food. We got to. And I was like, okay, everyone, let's chill out. Like no food. He's going to have plenty of food. People are going to bring him plenty of food. He doesn't need food. What he needs is if you have memory of, of his wife, write that down. Um, maybe check in with him in a month to see if he needs his oil changed in his car, right? Ask, you know, take, take his son out to dinner or out to lunch. Call his son with kind and loving texts and remind, you know, reminding him of how their son reminds him of, of their mother. Like there's so many different ways. And that was sort of the first thing that I started to kind of pay attention to. And as I matured in my HR role, I saw this over and over and over again. I saw companies being like, well, there's a death, we'll send flowers. Well, we're good, we'll send flowers. And then the team of the, you know, of the employee was wanting to do something more, but no one knew what to do because, you know, no one knows what to do normally. And you put these people in the workplace and they don't know, they still don't know what to do. Recently at the, my current position, there were two employees who had cancer and I actually approached one of them and said, Hey, would you like to have like a point person? He's like, Oh my gosh, yes. Because he's very, he was very loved at work. He is very loved at work. And I knew that all these people were going to deluge him and his wife with offers of support and that he was going to feel overwhelmed because he's the one dealing with battling this cancer. And so it was really kind of at that moment that the idea of being able to support HR professionals, which I am, and managers in dealing with cancer and, and teams um, really was born. Because again, it's, it's, you know, as HR professional, we're on the front lines. You know, we get everything from massive heart attacks on site to parents who deal with kids who have cancer. So it's, it's a wide gamut of issues that we deal with, not just laws and, you know, you're breaking the rules. And so I realized that, you know, HR professionals need that toolbox to be able to either support the employee directly or to support a manager who needs to support an employee. That's so important. And I think it's something that is not certainly in other duties as assigned kind of role for, a, yes. for anyone. But I think about I think about my own experience, and I'm not sure that my I'm not sure that my coworkers or my manager really knew what to do or how to be supportive of me during that time. You know, during the time that my father's cancer diagnosis was was progressing, and you know, and I certainly didn't know myself what it was I needed because it was just so it was it was just there, right? It was so difficult to understand what was going to happen next or and in some ways, because I was in healthcare, it was easier for me to understand what was coming next, but I didn't want to accept what was coming next. Yeah. That's, um, you know, and so it was so challenging in that regard. So I really appreciate the voice that you're putting to that effort to help other HR and management teams be more supportive. You know, you hit on a point, and I think it is, this is what I say to everybody, and I probably should have said this at the very beginning of the podcast, but there's one phrase you never want to say, and I'll tell you why, and it's, if you need anything, let me know. And I know that most of your listeners have probably said it, look, I said it a ton of times before I was on the other side of that statement, and here's why it's not helpful. One, because you're saying anything. Anything is way too big right? So you're asking the person who is in the middle of this crisis to literally go through their day and think about one thing that you can do for them to help them. And they have no idea. And I think that's what I wanted to kind of jump off of what you said. The person in crisis has no idea what they need. I could not have told you that I needed the oil changed in my car. I just couldn't have. It wouldn't have been something that came to mind. And even if I had thought about the oil that I needed to get changed in my car, I would have felt really stupid asking you to change the oil in my car because it seems like something that I should be able to do by myself. So anything is too big. And the second reason that's not the most helpful thing to say is because now, let's say just, let's just say I figure out anything. 
Right. So, so Amy, you've said it to me and I've figured out the one thing. Now I have to decide if you are actually going to be comfortable doing the one thing that I want you to do. Because there's picking up my preschooler at school who's sick. There's running and getting a, a gallon of milk. There's buying shoes for my children. I mean, there were so many, any things. And I don't know, are you comfortable with having a, a four-year-old snot-nosed, coughing, sneezing kid in your car? I don't know that. You know, are you going to be comfortable giving myself a break? Will you come in and read to my dying mother? I don't know that. And so now I'm put in the position of having to ask you to do something that you may be like, um, yeah, I meant anything, but I didn't mean anything. So that's extremely risky for the person with cancer. Um, and that's the third reason is because I'm very vulnerable right now. I, I don't, you know, we live in a fantastic country that has done amazing things. And we believe fully in the power of independence and being able to do things by ourselves. And while I don't think that that's very true, we never do anything by ourselves, but that's what we believe in. And so when you're approaching someone who is dealing with this crisis, there's a lot of shame in the fact that I can't manage to get the oil changed in my car. There's shame in that I can't function enough to make sandwiches for my kids. You know, there's shame in that I just, I can't remember that we didn't have pasta, although I know I remembered it this morning and now I've got a boiling pot of water and I, I remember that I remembered it this morning that we have no pasta and now I don't know what we're gonna eat for dinner. So there's a lot of shame in that. And so when you put me, the person with, the person who needs the help in the position of having to guess what I need, having to guess whether or not you'll do it, and then having to put myself out there to ask you whether you do it, it's just not going to happen. Just put so much burden back on the person who is in the situation that is that's struggling or that might be, you know, might be drowning really in all of the details of what's going on in their lives at that given point that if you ask them, just if you need anything, just let me know. Like you just illustrated, you've just added exponentially more burden onto them. Yeah, I, I, that is one piece of advice that I have found that I share routinely as well with, with people who have asked me because I have found myself in a similar situation as what you described as being the go-to of, well, Amy, you've been through this with your parents. What is yes. something that would have, that I can do that would be more helpful to somebody else who's now dealing with something similar and I always tell them, don't just give them a blanket statement. Be specific on what it is you're willing to do. Ask them, can I bring you supper? Okay, well, don't just ask them that. Can I bring you supper on Friday? And then ask them, yes. do you have, I'm going to make this spaghetti bake. Is that something that you would like? You know, Or, or, or give them a choice. I always right. like choices. You can have this or this, which would you like? And again, that allows them to free up their brain because there's two choices in front of them. They can make the choice. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. They just don't have to think. Yes. And I always tell people, be specific. Be as specific as you possibly can and offer more than once. What I know is that most people are afraid to help because they don't know how. They're afraid that what they're going to say is going to make it worse. And they're also afraid that they're going to say the one thing, right? So those are the fears that we have in general that keep us from really being supportive to a person with cancer. And I always say, even if you say the wrong thing, the beauty of saying the wrong thing is you can come back and say the right thing. And you can come back and say, you know, I thought about what I said about if you need anything, let me know. And how much burden that puts on you. I'm so sorry. So here's the thing. Would you like me to come walk your dog on Tuesday and Thursdays or Mondays and Wednesdays, right? And then offer more than once because as I was referring to before, we're very, we're in a country full of independence. And so a person um, with cancer may be totally open to you helping them. And then, or they may be totally like, no, I got it. I got it. I'm good. But the more you, you know, if you offer more than once and you kind of remind them, hey, you call them on Sunday. Monday's tomorrow. I've got Monday off. I can take the dog for half a day or I can walk the dog in the morning and the evening or, you know, I can pick the kids up from school and bring them back or I can stop by the office and, and pick up the paperwork that you need. Whatever it is, if you keep offering more than once, then the thing is that they're going to remember that. You know, the book is, is dedicated to a guy named Kinney. Um, I, live in, I live in California, Los Angeles, and I used to visit a farmer's market in Venice. It was called the Venice Farmer's Market. And when I told Kinney that my husband had cancer, he said, if you need anything big moved, let me know. 
And I thought that was the weirdest offer. I was like, if I need anything big moved, like what, like what, what big thing could I possibly need moved except for my husband? And I just don't see you coming in and carrying him out to the car. Right? So, but the thing about his offer is that it stuck in my head. And so years went by, my husband passed away and I had this massive urge to rearrange the furniture in the house. And we had a, a, a grand piano. And I wanted the grand piano move from one spot to another. And even though it was on sliders, it was really hard to move. And who do you think I called? So, you know, what I remember, what th that was really sort of the, the, the specifics that, you know, when you offer something specific, the person is not always going to think about you when you say, hey, I'm willing to do your laundry, right? They're not, or I'm, I can come over and mop the kitchen floor. So they're going to be like, yeah, 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 whatever. But when they look down at that kitchen floor and they see how filthy it is and you've offered several times, they're going to be like, wow, she really means it. And I'm going to call her and let her do it because I can't do it myself because I'm just so overwhelmed. And that, that's the beauty of that, of doing that. You get to show up in a way that they need um, and also in a way that you are willing to show up because there's nothing worse than supporting a friend in something that you really don't like to do. Like if you are a germ person, you're a germaphobe, having a kid in the backseat of your car coughing is going to like really creep you out. And it's going to make you really uncomfortable. And that doesn't feel very good. The helping should be mutual. It should, you should be able to walk away from a situation going, wow, like I, I really helped them today. I feel really good about what I did and I'm happy to do it again. Right. Well, and the other thing too, is that by asking repeatedly or reminding them that the offer still stands, every day is going to be different. Yes. So they might make the, you might make the offer one day and they are fully capable and willing and wanting to do whatever it is you've offered to do for them. But if you ask, ask again, three or four days later, some other circumstance might be weighing on their mind more heavily than before, or maybe they're not feeling well that day. And it is something that needs to be done on that particular day. And they're going to be willing to take you up on it because the circumstances have changed. The perspective has changed. That is such a good point. I can't even add anything to that. You are absolutely right. Circumstances change. Moods change. Overwhelmment changes. One day I remember feeling like I've got it. I've got it all. Everyone's organized. I got the rides going. I know lunches. You know, I got this. And then the, the exact same day can happen the next day. And I'm like, I'm falling apart. I can't manage it. My brain is fried. You know, I put the wrong sandwiches in the, in the wrong lunch boxes, you know, whatever it is. That's such a good point. Right. You just don't know what that tipping point is going to be. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. If you were to give someone your two best pieces of advice mm. for being a good support to, to a person with cancer or with any chronic illness, what would that be? Well, I think the first thing is don't say, if you need anything, let me know. The second thing is speak from the heart. Um, we often underestimate how our words really affect people. Um, so I think the second, actually second is kind of a combination. Make sure you say something, don't ignore it because when you ignore it, you're basically saying to the person, your experience, your life experience doesn't really matter. And I know that from most of us, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that we're, we're, we, we ignore it because we're scared and we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're saying and we're worried about saying the wrong thing and we're worried about making it worse and all that stuff. But on the outside, what it looks like to the person who's dealing with that crisis is that you don't care. So make sure you say something. And when you say something, speak from the heart. And that can be something as simple of like, I am so deeply, deeply sorry. And I don't even know what to say. Some of the most powerful things that people said to me, especially after Art died, were, were just that. I, I don't know what to say. You know, I want to say something that's going to make it better for you, that's going to make you feel whole again. And I know I can't do that. And I'm just so frustrated and I don't know what to say. That's a really powerful thing to say. And then the last thing I would say is take some small action. So I'm going to give three is take some small action. And that small action, look, I mentioned, you know, snot-nosed kids and oil changes and meals and, you know, making sandwiches and gas cards. It doesn't even have to be that big an action. It can be just a card that says, I'm thinking about you today. I love you. I care about you. You know, I'm hoping that this somehow will, will, will make your day better. I had a friend who called me every Wednesday after my husband passed away 
in the morning when I was trying to get the kids ready for school, she was also getting her children ready for school. And she left me a joke on my answering machine, on my, you know, on my voicemail. Mm -hmm. And someone, you know, some people say that's so inappropriate. Your husband died. And I was like, it was the most appropriate thing in the world because I would get the kids out the door. They were getting rides. And then I'd have to face the fact that my husband was dead. And I'd have to kind of look at this house and figure out how I was going to get through the day. And what I would do is I would listen to that voicemail and I would laugh. And sometimes it was the only time during the day that I would laugh. And it was just, you know, even if it was a small chuckle and it was such a huge gift to me. So when I talk about, you know, showing up for a friend, it's something as simple as that. It's sending a card saying, you know, I got a card that says this sucks. And that's all it said. And it was signed by my friend inside. You know, it's showing up in a way that feels really authentic to you. And it's working past your fear. It's not about you. And I mean that in the, in the kindest way. I mean, I know that we think we're worrying about our friend, but really when we turn it into a message of I'm scared, I'm worried, I don't want to, those have nothing to do with your friend. They all have to do with eyes and knees and our feeling of, of feeling like we don't want to look foolish. We don't want, we want to look like we're in control. We want to look like we know what we're doing. Whatever your friend is going through, she or he does not know what they're doing. They are not in control. They are terrified out of their mind. They're trying to manage a really unmanageable situation. And if you match them at that vibration, if you match them of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm out of my mind with worry for you. I'm terrified too. And if you match them at that, and so, but I'm going to send you this card or I'm going to call you every day and go, how's your day? Or I'm going to call you and tell you the dumbest thing that somebody did in the office. If you can get to that place where you know that you're coming from a really authentic, heartfelt place, then you can't go wrong. You really can't go wrong. Those are kind of the three things, you know, don't say if you need anything, let me know. Make sure you speak to them and speak from the heart and take a small action, a warm cup of coffee, a basket of a thing of teas, a phone call with a silly joke. You know, I get my best jokes from Zappos. Every day Zappos has a new joke. That's right, they do. I call up Zappos and I listen to the joke and I write down the joke so I can tell someone the joke. You know, I think it's really about just getting back to the authentic place. Your friend having cancer, your coworker having cancer, your employee having cancer, scary as heck. You know, it feels so terrifying. And it's terrifying because one, we look at that and we think, wait, if they can get cancer, I can get cancer. It also is terrifying because it puts us up against our own mortality. You know, we are not going to live forever, although we like to pretend like we are. And it's scary because it's unexplainable. We don't know where cancer comes from, right? We, we know the science, which says if you eat this way, you are more likely to get cancer, but there's no, you know, there's no guarantee that you are or aren't going to get cancer. It's so out of our own control. And those three things together make it really hard for us to come close to it because it just feels so uncomfortable. And so we say things like, well, at least it's a good kind of cancer. At least it's only stage two. At least we try to separate ourselves from the person and from the experience that they are having. But if you can just touch in, I'm not saying you have to do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week for four months while your friend is dealing with cancer or your employee. But if you can just touch in for a moment of the vulnerability of that, of the out of control feeling of that, of the fear of that, and you give from that place, wow, whatever action you take is going to be an amazing action. I think too, just to kind of build on one thing that you said there, when you follow up with an at least type of a statement, it also minimizes their experience yes. Yes. or their, their reality. And while you may think that you're saying that to try and make them feel better, I think it actually makes a person feel worse. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. Because what you're trying to do when you say at least is, you're, like you said, we're trying to minimize it. So you're saying in, in an effort to make them feel better, you're making them feel invisible. Right. So Or insignificant um, in some way. Insignificant. Exactly. If it's cancer or I, <laughs> I was told a couple days after my husband died, well, at least you're young and you can get remarried. And somehow oh, that was supposed to make me feel better. Um, like, well, I still have a good portion of my life left. And so I can do that. So I don't have to really worry about the death of my husband because I can, at least I'm young. Um, 
And you know, well, at least it's stage two, right? So when you're saying that, what you're trying to do is you're trying to separate yourself from your friend's experience or from your coworker's experience. You're basically saying, I can't handle this. So I want you to look at the bright side so I can feel better about you looking at the bright side. You know, it's the same thing with statements like stay strong, be positive, think positive thoughts. While those words can be really powerful at the right moment, to say them off the cuff is basically saying, I can't manage what you're going through. So I'm going to say this statement and feel like I've done my good job, my good deed for the day, because I told you to stay strong and I'm going to go out the door. Instead of saying, gosh, I, it must be really hard to think positive right now. Or I'm wondering if it's really hard for you to think positive right now. And I want to say to you, think positive, And I know that's a struggle. There, there's so many things that people say that they mean well, but really what they're doing is they're, they're putting a wedge between the person with cancer and their own life experience because they can't manage the emotions that come up with it. And they're not easy emotions to manage by any stretch of the imagination. No, they really are not. No, it's a difficult situation all the way around. Thank you, Kim, so much for being on the show today. I, there, there's just so many things about this conversation that I think will be helpful to everyone. Because at some point, we are all going to know someone who has cancer or is caring for someone with cancer. Likely, most people already are in that situation. But if they're not, they will be at some point. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is really valuable information for them to consider and have, have tucked away in the back of their minds so that when they do need that resource, they can come back to it. Or they can remember that they heard this fabulous woman on this podcast and was like, what's the name of her book? I need to find her book well, so that I, I need to know, you know, so that I have that resource so that I can be a better support system. To well, those I'd like that to I give love. your listeners a gift. So if they go to 100actsoflove.com backslash Amy's podcast, they can sign up for a free download of um, seven things to say and seven things not to say. Great. That's wonderful. So, Thank you yeah, Kim, for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So Amy's no apostrophe. So Amy's podcast and they can download that so they can have those tools. Cause you know, that's sort of, that's my purpose. My purpose is to, my, my real purpose is to make sure that no one ever says ever again, if you need anything, let me know. That's my sole purpose. We live in a country that is that is feeling more and more divided. This is one of those things that goes across lines. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how little money you have. It doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. It doesn't matter whether you're a member of the KKK or a member of Black Lives Matter, right? It doesn't matter because these emotions, these experiences happen across all lines. And knowing how to support your KKK friend or knowing how to support your Black Lives Matter friend is something is a tool that we all need because it builds that community. It allows us to show how much we care for another person. And I'm sorry if those, those uh, definitions offend somebody, but so I just want people to be able to have those tools to be able to show support to somebody that they care about and maybe someone that they don't care about, but now all of a sudden they can put themselves in that, in those shoes and they get that experience. Right. Um, so yeah. Well, thank you so much. I will make sure that I put a link to that in the podcast show notes, as well as links to be able to find your podcast and to be able to get to your book. Thank you, Kim, so much. I have enjoyed our conversation a lot and I know that my listeners will as well. Amy, thank you so much for your time. I, I love what you do and I love listening to your podcast. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for your purpose. This has been the Pursuit of Purpose podcast presented by Austin Marketing. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. Head over to amyaustinmarketing.com for links and resources mentioned in today's show, as well as ways to subscribe and connect with Amy. Thanks for listening.